do is give you a little bit of a heads up on kind of some issues that go behind the, the kind of questions about how to read these these texts, and then Mike is going to help us think more about how we should be reading scripture. But I wanted to start with a video. If I can pull it up easily. Can I pull it up easily? Okay. So Becky Collins is here. If you'll raise your hand, Becky, where I saw your face. Um, Becky teaches uh, my son Abel at um, preschool, and this is. Let's see. Just click off it one more time, and it'll leave you alone. This video is something Jason made of Abel recently. He's our, our three-year-old talking about the story of creation and what happened. And so I want to use this as a way of um, getting into the conversation. And they ate it, and they died. And, and, Who died? And, and Adam and Eve. And then what happened? And they, and, and they, and they, and then they died, and then, and, and God put some um, meat kind of angels. They had swords, and then, and the swords cut the beautiful garden. Miss <laughs> Collins. Yeah. <laughs> we just found that funny. That um, so what? What I wanted you to think about in, in watching the video of him giving this very emphatic description about how they died. I mean, that point really stood out to him. You know, you just never know what's going to stick. Um, but first of all, side note: we love that that he's learning these stories, so it's wonderful for children to be raised in a community of faith. Um, but it is, it, it begs the question, how am I going to explain this story to my son eventually, right? What are the truths that he needs to know about the story? And the question is, especially for me, about this quote I've written on the board, the drama of redemption, because I want to know not only what really happened, I mean, with the angels and the death and the swords and all of that. I mean, that the what really happened is interesting. But for me, it also becomes really important to think about what this means for him and his walk of faith as a person of faith in Jesus Christ. What does the story of the garden have to do with Christ and our testimony to who he is? So a couple of notes about the history. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, um, George Parks did a nice job kind of taking us through, you know, showing us what happened in modernity with some of the, the great scientific minds and the questions they were asking. And one thing he highlighted is that in the shift into enlightenment scientific reasoning, you had this kind of obsession with um, the question about design. And there's a lot of reasons, I mean, you could, we could talk about the historical reasons behind that, but why people started shifting to place their faith in the possibility of there being a design in creation, which testified to a creator. What's interesting is that pre-modern people, pre-enlightenment scientific reasoning, weren't as concerned about that question because they took it as a given that the world is a spiritual place. It's layered with spiritual realities, that there are spiritual beings and hierarchies, and that there is some sort of spiritual force at work in the world, okay? So no one was, I mean, there were some people who questioned God's existence, but not in the same way that modern people began to. So the shift to attending to design became really important for people who started, the possibility of atheism became real for them. So I could say a lot more about all of that, but a couple of things to emphasize. 
What you ended up with when you got into modernity was also this shift where you saw scholarship and faith is separate from one another. And so you, you started focusing, if you're a biblical scholar, you started focusing upon history and upon the kind of scientific possibilities behind the text. So there's this really famous example of this called the quest for the historical Jesus. You may have heard of this, where there were certain scholars who made it their life's work to try to figure out who the real, the real Jesus was, not the Jesus of the text, and not the Jesus of the church, of faith, but the Jesus behind the text. So one benefit of that is that it called our attention to the fact of Jesus' Jewishness. It called our attention away from um, making Jesus in our own image, so to speak. But the problem with it is that it located the authority behind the text or outside of the text. Does that make sense? You start looking for something that you can abstract from it, and that's where you put your faith, rather than in what you're learning by engaging the story itself. So um, the result of all of this is we end up with people thinking that they have to argue with non-believers on those terms. So when it comes back to the Genesis story, for example, we feel this great sense of we have to assert the truth, like what actually happened, that this actually happened the way the Bible said it did. And so people start arguing on these terms, and you have what's called the clash of faith and science. Um, again, we could unpack a lot of this, but what I want to say is that that clash comes about partially because we've conceded uh, the, the, the terms of the debate, okay? Um, and I don't, is there something you wanted to add to that based on what you were... Okay, Micah might expand upon it some. Um, so the thing that I think we need to be doing is, first of all, we need to shift our worldview into allowing for the mystery at work in the world um, so that we don't think we can map all of the things that happen in terms of scientific empirical reasoning. And part of what that means is that we need to allow for faith knowledge that expand, like it kind of expands upon our rational knowledge. It doesn't just substitute for it. So it's not like we're saying use faith. That means check your reason at the door. It means that your faith knowledge is something that reason can lead you towards, that can your faith can build upon reason. But reason can't, empirical scientific reasoning can't do all the work of knowledge that you need to move through the world including the faith we talked about a few weeks ago that you have in your knowledge of a certain person. So I have an understanding of uh, who my husband is that is a rational understanding, but it's not a scientific empirical understanding of who he is. So will you tell him the example about yeah. that you heard? So um, Jim Strump, help. Stump. Stump, thank you. He was at Lipscomb for the last couple days and he gave a, a kind of a chapel talk science majors on Friday, and I was able to attend, and then he was attending and presenting at Micah's event, and he was talking about knowledge and kind of the, the dimensions of, of reality, not dimensions like from a, from a physics standpoint, but he used this uh, analogy that I thought was, was good, and he, and he said, had a picture of a, of a teapot boiling, and he said, why is the teapot boiling? And one one physical description would be uh, you flipped a switch and it completed a circuit and electrons flowed through wires and then the partial then it produced kinetic energy and then the uh, kinetic was transferred the kinetic energy to the uh, to the water and then the partial pressure of the water became greater than 
or less than Fletcher than that of um, <laughs> the, the surrounding environment and therefore you have water boiling. And he said, or you could say, because I wanted a cup of tea. And I think that's a pretty, pretty good uh, explanation about, you know, there's different types of knowledge. There is um, empirical knowledge of the physical world, and then there's uh, kind of a different dimension, not in the in the physical sense, but different um, kind of. Um, and the important thing there is that the two do not are not um, in, incompatible with each other. Is I think what I would want to say. So go ahead, Micah. You can. Sure. Yeah, I, I did this conference all day yesterday, and so if my voice goes out, I <laughs> I apologize. Um, yeah, I think that's that's uh, a really important idea, and the. Um, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this is the verse we typically go to when we think about uh, saying that scripture is inspired or, you know, um, we often use this as a synonym for infallible or inerrant or something like this. But the focus of this verse is that it's useful, right? It's useful for transforming humans. And I think that's something that we miss. A lot of the discussions around, um, you know, Genesis and so forth miss the usefulness of it. We're just intent on saying, well, they had belly buttons or they didn't have belly buttons or like there's, <laughs> that's not useful, right? But, but um, the scripture itself says what we're looking for is usefulness in a sense. And so um, one of the people that I'm really fascinated by is Francis Bacon. And um, I think it's really, there's a lot of irony that goes on in some of the history of science stuff. Uh, Francis Bacon, I think, doesn't get as much airtime as someone like Galileo. And yeah, Francis Bacon, I think, is really significant and um, really significant for us because, of, as far as I can tell, he's one of the most theologically motivated um, scientists um, are, that that has lived, really. And so uh, a lot of people have called him the, the father of the scientific method. And um, we can talk about maybe how he compares with uh, Galileo and Galileo's approach. Uh, but so here's some, some uh, you know, praise for him. I think this is written in the 1800s. Uh, Bacon's influence in the modern world is so great that every man who rides in a train sends a telegram, follows a steam plow, sits in an easy chair, crosses the channel or the Atlantic, eats a good dinner, enjoys a beautiful garden, or undergoes a painless surgical operation owes him something. Now this guy was his biographer, so maybe that's a little uh, <laughs> uh, biased, but this is Thomas Jefferson. Bacon, Locke, and Newton. I consider them the three greatest men that have ever lived without any exception and as having laid the foundation of those superstructures which have been raised in the physical and moral sciences. So Jefferson lists Bacon first, right? And Bacon is hugely influential in the thought of the early Americans and particularly in the churches of Christ. Um, so we can talk about that. So he lives uh, 1561 to 1626, which is roughly, to kind of put in context with other discussions, roughly contemporary with Galileo, right? So Galileo was born around the same time, lived longer. The Inquisition uh, that he's famous for happened in 1633, and by that point in time, Bacon was already dead. 
Um, both of them were writing at the same time, obviously in different places. Bacon was in England, um, and so this this played out. The story played out in a different way. And uh, to kind of give some some greater context, the Royal Society in England was founded in 1660. A little bit later, we can talk about the significance of that. So. Francis Bacon was his, one of his mentors, uh, probably his most significant mentor was Lancelot Andrews, who is a, um, uh, was a high, highly ranked bishop in the Church of England and oversaw the translation of the King James Version. And so everything that Bacon worked through the, theologically, he like ran by this guy. And so they were working out this theology that Bacon used as the under lying foundation of his understanding of science. And so Bacon uh, published two, he published a lot of work, but uh, two that are really significant um, are the, the Great Instauration um, and the New Atlantis. And the New Atlantis was published after, right after his death. Um, so it was never finished. And in fact, the Great Instauration was never finished either. And the, the Great Instauration was his proposal to King James of the Bible, uh, for establishing science as a core project in society. And so the Royal Society that was founded in 1660 um, explicitly traces its origin back to what Bacon was doing. Uh, so King James didn't do it, but his successors came along, and they founded the Royal Society. I think the original group that was together uh, trying to create that called it the New Atlantis society. So the, the great instauration is his theological proposal to King James of here's why we're going to need to do science as a society. And the New Atlantis is an early work, maybe the, one of the earliest works of what we would call science fiction. It's imagining a society that was technologically advanced, had all these tools, and, and the idea of the New Atlantis became really influential, not just in the Royal Society, but in Thomas Jefferson's understanding of what America was supposed to be. And that was, and, and Alexander Campbell and the Church of Christ very much uh, inspired by it, because what the New Atlantis deals with is, it says, what is the method we're going to use to get to that technologically advanced society where we all live longer and are healthier and have better foods and all these kinds of things. We're cured of diseases, we can fly through the air, we can create optical illusions. He was working with some really advanced ideas uh, for 1626 and, and 27. And um, so his idea about what that was, was that we needed the right method. And that means, uh, in his thinking, we needed the right theology to get to the right method that would create the kind of society that God intended for us to live in. So putting that in kind of historical context, so his, his work, The Great Instauration, started coming out in 1620. Uh, he died in 1626. The New Atlantis came out in 1627. Galileo it has the Inquisition in, the, in 33, and the Royal Society is founded in 1660. So these are some pretty significant kind of things in the history of science. Um, and so this is um, the introduction to the New Atlantis written by someone 
um, after, after he died as they published it. He says, This fable my Lord devised to the end that he might exhibit therein a model or description of a college instituted for the interpreting of nature and the producing of great and marvelous works for the benefit of men under the name of Solomon's house or the college of the six days work. So he's saying that, um, that this fiction is intended to inspire a, something like the Royal Society. This is Bacon's intention, is that we set up a, a scientific institute that's inspired by uh, the, the thing he lays out here. So this is what's really fascinating. The College of the Six Days Work. So does that, does that ring any bells? What, is it, what does that sound like he's saying? Creation of the world. Yeah. So Six Days Work is Francis Bacon's term for the scientific method. This is, as far as I know, between him and Lancelot Andrews, this is the, these are the people who are using this terminology. Galileo's not using this terminology. As far as I can tell, Galileo's not really thinking in a methodological fashion. He's just thinking, well, we look at the stars and we kind of come up with something and we, we figure it out. And if you don't believe this, then look at the telescope yourself and, you know, like that kind of stuff. Bacon doesn't buy that. He doesn't think that we can just take what seems to be the case or go out and look at the world and whatever. He thinks it's more complicated than that. And so there's, we need a method. We need a methodology to walk through to actually understand and uh, work in the world. And he says this is, we can't separate our science from technology. We can't separate our, our, um, our knowledge from values. All of these have to go together. And when we separate them, we've run into big, big troubles. And so he sees um, the fall as being, in a sense, like this separation of value and knowledge. And um, this, and he, see, he warns people not to separate these things. You can't undergo science unless you have the right ethics, the right motivation, the right ends in mind. Um, so... He calls, it, he calls his scientific method the six-day work, and he claims to have read the scientific method out of Genesis 1. He says, Genesis 1 is a model for us to use to understand and attain the power that God intended in the world. Now, is there any like biblical basis for this? Well, I think so. So, um, in Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So this is an argument made in the Ten Commandments that because God did this this way, we were given it as a pattern for our own work. There's a connective tissue between the way God works and the way we work. And I think in that this idea of like the six days, the seventh, you know, a week, it's the only time period in Genesis 1 that's tied not to any kind of natural phenomenon, but only to the creative work of God and humans. That's the only anchoring point for that. So Exodus sees, um, in some ways, Genesis 1 as a pattern for how humans are to live. And so the, this is a, a big, this was a big deal in Bacon's time. Lancelot Andrews was doing a lot of lectures on this idea. And Bacon adopts that, that framework and says, yes, this is a pattern for how humans are to live. And so 
he sees this, the primary value of Genesis 1, as being that it's useful, right? It gives us a way to engage the world and discover new things and, um, and engage in creative, productive work. And when we um, accept our uh, identity as the image of God, then we understand this is useful for us in thinking about how we do our work. This is kind of a pattern laid out for our work, not just something we know, but something we use. So um, I'll show you a little bit about how he interpreted this, and, uh, and then we can talk about whether this makes any kind of sense or <laughs> whether this uh, uh, brings up any questions. So, so here's Genesis, you know, the first couple of uh, steps here. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then later it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So these are some pretty clear um, passages we're, we're pretty familiar with, right? Um, and, and of course it goes on, right? And he, he uh, blesses humanity and all this kind of stuff. And so what we see in this, or what Bacon seems to have seen in this, is a pattern of work that God lays out in Genesis 1, and then humans, starting from Genesis 2 on, start to imitate. And he talks about some of those things. Um, explicitly, uh, and, and I'll kind of tease that out. Um, so what is the first thing that God does, right? Well, he, he brings light, and then he sees that it's good, right? And then he establishes the value of it, right? Um, so the light was good, right? Um, and then he categorizes separates the night or the light from the darkness right? and then he names it he calls the light day and the darkness he calls night and then he starts to establish purposes right so when he, this verse right here let let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. So here's a purpose for these things. And this is, I think, the first version in Genesis 1 where he really lays out that idea of purpose. So he's already, he's already observed, he's already um, valued, he's already na- uh, categorized and named, and now he's establishing a purpose for these things. And then... He goes on to bless them, and then he goes on to rest, right? And so this is the, the, as Bacon saw, this is the creative process that God lays out for us. We see, we observe, we value, we categorize, we name, we establish purpose, we bless, and then we rest. And so, yeah, he sees this as being... um, the creative, the process by which the world was created, and the process by which we are called to do our own creative work as well. And he sees there's a few lessons he teases out, but from this, like so, one of them is um, light before fruit, 
And so he thinks one of the big problems in science of his day is that people are rushing forward to some kind of application or some kind of um, big theory or something like that before they've actually seen what's going on, before they've observed and, and been able to ac accurately kind of uh, take in all the information. And so he kind of understands light is knowledge. So um, we have to have the ability to observe and, um, and to do that. And he, he makes another interesting uh, connection, rest is power. So he, uh, he understands that if we um, use these, this method in the way that he's laid out, that at the end of it, we get things like medicine, we get things like labor-saving devices, we get things like all, all these kinds of things, right? And so then we rest um, because we have created something which gives us this utility in the natural world. And he's very interested um, that we uh, use this for good. He says we can't, use, we can't do this at all if we don't use it for good because that's where the fall comes from. So anyway, um, that's, that's how he connects those things and it, um, it's, it's really significant in um, what he's doing. So he calls it the six days work. That's his argument to uh, King James that you need to establish a scientific society because this is the pattern God laid out for us. We should be doing this. That's what we're supposed to do. And in uh, and, and his fictionalized version of it, it becomes really influential. People take that seriously and, and they run with it. So this is a way that he saw scripture. I think it's really ironic because we think of Genesis 1 and science as, as being clashing heads so much, right? This is the, the thing historically we've talked about a lot. And yet Genesis 1 is the thing that inspired this formulation of the scientific method in this way. So I don't know if that's helpful, or but, um, but I, I'd love to have, have any kind of... Uh, questions or discussion about that. I know that's like uh, probably a whole lot to throw, <laughs> what, what throw up there. What became the Royal Society? Well, it so uh, went on to, I mean, it, it continues to exist uh, as, as far as I know, um, but uh, became like prominent with, you know, Isaac Newton and all these people, right? Like they became really a central, um, the, it's the oldest, um, oldest scientific organization in the world. Um, and it is uh, one of the most influential like sources of, of kind of learning and scientific knowledge. And I think it really, it, it has a complicated history because it, it gives Britain ultimately a lot of power. And I'm not sure that over the next several centuries they use that power in the best way. And um, I think that actually really has some some significant like things we needed to, to think about there. And I, I like to think it's because he didn't finish the New Atlantis. At the end of the New Atlantis, they're, they're saying, what do we do with this power that we've gotten? And they're trying to ask that question, and they never answer it. It's, it's unfinished. And so Britain kind of takes this as a pattern, but doesn't have an ethical vision of what to do with all that power. And I think that's probably both like an example of, of some of the heights of science and its, uh, and its uh, depths as well. So, you know. Something, I, I, real quickly, I'd want to mm -hmm. point out, so bringing us back to this here, yep. what I find interesting is that what, what Bacon was doing was 
looking at, let's say in the Genesis narrative, you have the, the part, the really crucial part where God places the people in the garden and gives them a, a task. Mm-hmm. They are to tend the garden, they're to subdue the earth, right? they're to fill it with God's glory. So this is the human vocation and it's a theological vocation. And it essentially is, you're made in the image of God. Part of that work means taking God's work into the world. So you're, you're ordering the chaos, you're naming the animals, you're tending the garden. So there's already this work happening, right? Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that what Bacon was doing was essentially saying, we have this vocation, we're made in the image of God to be God, God's representatives in the world. And he's looking, I love that you emphasize the pattern. So he's looking at what's happening in Genesis for a pattern for vocation. Rather, and he's, his vocation is scientific. That's his means of going into the world and doing this work. But we all have that same vocation. We all do it in our own lines of work. So he was using science as his way of imaging God in the world, and he's following this pattern. So he's doing this. Yeah. He's attending to the that and the what of the matter in Scripture rather than the how and the when of changing scientific worldviews to look for what's crucial in the drama of redemption, of which he's part. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to, I wanted to highlight that. and then I, I would add that the, the language subdue, that we're putting the garden to subdue, is interesting <coughs> because God didn't create the world that he intended it to be mm. from the beginning. Mm. He created it for us because he takes joy in watching us mm-hmm. make the world yeah, I think that's uh, um, the point about like the naming of the animals. Bacon talks about that a lot. That, so God names and categorizes creation throughout Genesis 1, and then the first thing that humans are asked to do is to name and categorize creation in Genesis 2, right? God, bring, like, God leads them by the hand, essentially, and says, okay, here's your task. I will ha- show you how to do this, right? Here's some animals name them, identify what that, you know. And so they're given that task. God is not saying, that's a cow, that's a horse. God is saying, what does this, you know, what is your uh, response to this? What is your value and name that you're bringing to this? Uh, I'm not sure who this is directed to. The, the key to faith is, first of all, believing that God exists and that he created the everything. At what point did it, your faith depend on not whether he created it, but the exact way he created it, which is, has separated a whole lot of so-called Christians and driven a lot of people away. So when, when did, how did this evolve? There are two creation stories, two in Genesis. There's one in Genesis. There are two different creation stories in the same book. I went, we, again, we went to Egypt, and we, we purchased a calendar where the Egyptians had, uh, they already knew there were 365 days in the year, 12 months. I have a cab purchase account, I have it on my wall. So even before this Bible was written, prior to biblical history, there was a group of people in Africa that already figured this out. And, and the Babylonians already had a creation story too, even before this. So when you find out that there's knowledge of this incident and that this writing was plagiarized from other cultures, how does that affect your life? Mm. So I, I can jump yeah. in to the question of um, when does it have an issue? It goes back to what I was mentioning at the beginning of class, that there was this shift around the time of the Enlightenment to this to, to thinking of the scientific method as infallible, 
rather than scripture itself is infallible. Um, and there's a longer conversation we could have there about reasons for that shift, generally speaking, in society. But around that time, what happened is a lot of Christians started shifting and thinking, we have to argue on those same terms. And so instead of saying, our confession is about this, right? It's about a theological vocation. It's about seeing the truth and goodness and beauty of all things in the world is, is coming together in Christ. They started thinking, we have to argue in terms of the literal causation and occurrence that happened, and this is, this is the basis of our faith. And you're right, that because of that, a lot of people ended up leaving, leaving the faith because it's difficult, to, it's difficult to actually base your faith on that, right? That's not actually what the scientific empirical observation but, is. But from a faith matter, it doesn't matter if God created it with a big bang or if he got some muck and put it together out of the <laughs> Well, it, it, but that in and of itself requires a certain view of what faith is based on. And so for some people, they thought they had to argue on the terms of yeah. the person who's questioning it, right? And so they, I mean, you could, you could try to help them see it this way, the way you're naming it, but a lot of people thought they had to, they had to, to beat the, the person who was reading the text a certain way. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting how our primary concern shifts over time. I think, was it Kepler who was interested in seeing the the solar system as being composed of these platonic solids, right? And he was trying to map this out. He was trying to impose a theology on the the observable universe because it was important that the heavens work in a specific way for that theological system. Most of us have left that behind. We're not very concerned about the fact that the um, the orbits of the planets are elliptical. That doesn't bother us, right? But it maybe bothers us that maybe... Um, what you know? What if the the origin of the universe or the origin of Earth didn't fit a certain kind of theological pattern? And so we shift what we're concerned with. I don't think Kepler was you know concerned with the the thing that we're talking about here. So um, yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting thing, and it kind of correlates maybe with some of the modernism and postmodernism and, and so forth. But maybe we're in a maybe it's time for us to kind of look back and say, well, what is the, you know, like, what is the function of, of these texts? What is it designed to do for us? Um, and maybe our imposition, uh, I, think, I think one of the reasons why um, Bacon is, uh, gets so, um, so far with, with his, his methodology and his argument is that he's locating um, he's working out of a theology that sees the, the, the theological construction of the universe not as being in the orbits of the planets, not as being in the scientific history of the world, but his theology is about the human being and its relationship to God. And I think that empowers him to see the scientific method as he does. He's working out of, of a theology that, where all of the theological statements that are truly important are located in what does it mean to be human, made in the image of God, engaged in transformative work as God does. So I think it's really interesting that that Francis Bacon kind of interpreted that as, hey, God wants us to make technological and scientific advances and develop new widgets to improve yeah. the quality of life. Yeah. It's probably different for him than it is for us, right? Because we've seen 
much further yeah. into that trajectory, right? So yeah. we're doing things now like splicing DNA between two right. different species. We're looking at things like, you know, near light speed travel and these kind of yeah. things that we're trying to figure out. Does God want us to figure that stuff out? So the, yeah, that's true. I, 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 part of the reason I think Bacon is so interesting is because he is so forward thinking and forward looking. He didn't know about DNA, but he was talking about what we would call genetically modified foods. Right. Like, he was talking about um, the, what we would think of as, as projection screens and, and stuff like this. He thought this was part of the, the, the theological task of humanity. He was very clear on this, though. The only way that we can do this without creating a dystopia or whatever is if it's purely motivated by love, not even knowledge itself. He said you can't even go after knowledge itself because that in itself will only lead to destruction. But if you are aiming at this for God's purpose, which is love, then power can be used for good, and only then. But, he, but he's working out of an assumption that both, uh, I think, as you mentioned, like God didn't create the final form of the world, necessarily. God brought, brought us into it to help bring it to where it was supposed to go. And we had messed that up and introduced more problems so it was both kind of our responsibility to do something about them, and also if we, even if we were had solved all the problems we introduced, we had to. Um, God wanted us to engage in creative work. That was part of our role here. So there are a lot of ethical questions that you know you're bringing up, which are have a lot of complicated um, things with them. That that ethics has to be core. I mean, that's been an ongoing thing throughout history, right? People yep. had the same debate about, should man fly? Right. right. Those, those kind of ethical questions yep. were raised. Uh, and it's just interesting now. I mean, it's easy for us to look back and be like, well, obviously, like, flight. Like, there's no right. moral dilemma there. Like, it's right. a big deal. But, you know, as we're in some new new decisions, right, then we got to look at this. Absolutely, yeah. I think sometimes when the advances go ahead of developing the ethics, mm -hmm. it's a real problem. Yeah. And some of these uh, things you're talking about, uh, they're moving real fast. Yeah. You know, transferring genes and modifying things. You talked about the woman who's becoming younger. I mean, yeah. you know, cloning humans. Yeah. Yeah, all this stuff is happening. And, and I think what we have to do is we have to, to think deeply about the ethics of it before we get there. Um, because otherwise, if, if, our, if our power is running ahead of our, of our ethics, we will end up in a bad situation. Our ethics should lead, and we have to, but that requires a lot of work on our part, right, to think about that kind of stuff. Oh, thank you. Any other questions? I guess we're at time. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I'm back in here, Terry Briley, next yeah. week. <laughs>